I hated history class in high school and college. My history teachers in high school and my history teacher in college were everything that I am trying not to be for you. In my high school, my history teacher was the football coach. And again, it wasn't history, it was social studies. Many of you also had similar situations, right? You had a social studies class, probably taught by someone in the athletics team, because most colleges will not certify someone only to teach social studies. It's considered the, you know, anybody can teach that. And why can anybody teach that? Because we have some textbook. And we hand it out to the student, and this is not really a history class or a sociology class or an anthropology class. It is a reading class. You are being tested on your ability to comprehend what you're reading. You read a bunch of nonsense. There are bold words, and you have to memorize those. And then there'll be some very stupid questions at the end of each chapter, which you can answer by repeating the question in a different way and repeating what you read in the text. That is not history. So here's the problem. In the English language, we have this word history, and for most people it means things that happened in the past. Okay? Now in other languages, historia has other meanings as well. Historia, historique, historicski, whatever. There's different languages and they might have different meanings. In English, it means things that happened in the past. That's not what the study of history is. It's not just about the past. The original meaning of the word, we take it from ancient Greek, is investigation, research, trying to find out. At its most basic meaning, it's question. So history is about questioning, challenging, having a problem you do not know the answer to and trying to find that answer. So what's the problem with high school social studies classes? Well, there's no questions, right? The, the, the problem is you have a textbook that says, this is a thing that happened in the past. At no point is that textbook going to say, actually, we don't know what happened most of the time in the past. From now to the end of this course, I hope to open your mind to realize how little we actually know about history and why it matters to want to know more. You can watch you know, whatever your streaming service is, and see shows that are set in ancient Rome, Viking times. I don't know, pick, pick any historical area, era, right? It could be like Tang Dynasty China or Mughal India. And there will be people, actors, portraying certain historical figures, and you'll think, oh yeah, so they've done their homework. We know who these people were. They're wearing outfits. They're using swords. That is all of it, almost entirely a lie. Right? We know very, very little. And it's very easy to explain to you why we know so little from your own family histories. The average American 
cannot name their eight direct relatives, that is, their, their, their great-grandparents. Most can name their mother and father. Most can name their parents' parents, their grandparents. We've only got four. But once we go back to great-grandparents, the average American cannot name them, cannot give their first name or their last name. Guys, that is not ancient history. That's living history. There are people walking around who knew those people. Maybe you don't know them. And think about that for a moment. If we have such an inability to know people that if they did not exist, you would not exist. Everything that you are comes from those eight people, however good or bad they were. Maybe they were important people in their town. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they were criminals. I'm telling you right now, speaking from my own experience, right? I'm a historian. I take this stuff seriously. I know my eight great-grandparents. At least one of them was an unconvicted serial child molester who did awful things to his family and other people. No one in the family wants to remember this. This is things that I found out looking in the past. Other people in my family say, this is the worst thing you possibly could have done, is opening the closet, right? Skeletons should stay in the closet. All right. If you don't want to know where you come from, don't open the closet. Everyone's closet has skeletons. This is, to me, the most liberating thing about this. None of you is going to find a past that is only heroes and only villains. There are no heroes or villains. There are people who do things. <clears throat> Maybe these people are sick or twisted. They each have their own consequences for their actions. And I'm telling you right now, that great-grandfather of mine, there were no consequences for his actions. He didn't go to jail. History does a very good job of teaching you what your parents probably have said thousands of times. Life isn't fair. No, but it can make a lot more sense. People say life is meaningless or that it's just random chaos. Yes, if you don't know history, it is random chaos. But the study of history is about challenging and questioning and researching and understanding why did it happen this way. Okay, so when I say the dawn of history, let me be clear. History is about the written word, the study of things written down. There are other fields that study other things, right? Archaeologists do not worry about the written word. They might be studying materials that have survived, pots, knives, axes, bones, houses, clothing, things that have survived from the past. That's all well and good. That's a very important field. That's not what I study, and it's not what we're going to talk about. We're talking about the written word. So that makes it very easy, relatively speaking, to say, when does history begin? <clears throat> what begins when writing begins? But of course, if we don't have the writing, then we don't know when it begins. So it's also going to be the study of writing that has survived. Okay, so let's take a conservative estimate. Probably 99% of everything that has ever been written doesn't survive past the generation in which it's written. Right? Like most of us do not have this process of everything I write, I'm going to put it in a, a box. 
no matter what it is, no matter how stupid it is, if it's a list of things to pick up at the grocery store, I'm putting it in a box and I'm going to hold on to it and I'm going to pass it on to my children. No, right? That's not a thing. So we have to understand when we have things from history, usually someone somewhere has either chosen to remember it or they have thrown it away in such a way that it becomes preserved accidentally. Most of history is an accident. These are not things that the person writing it says, I am now writing the single most important thing in my life. And will do everything in my power to make sure that future generations can read this. No! Most of the things we know from history are accidents. The fact that you are reading it, that person living a thousand years ago or three thousand years ago, they could not imagine. They're like, like, I can even, if we had a time machine and told them, hey, by the way, Sennacherib, this line of yours survived 5,000 years. And be like, that's what survived? That's like one of the dumbest things I ever said. How did it survive? Well, accident. So, the oldest writing systems can be divided into sort of proto-writing and actual called functional writing. Most proto-writing systems never evolve to become a full writing system. A proto-writing system is what a tribe or a small civilization will use, and it's really focused on math. Right? That's its number one goal, is to write down numbers and something that will identify those numbers, like 100 jars of oil, 200 piles of wheat. You might have names, or so what we think are names, attached to them, so you can say, okay, Herman just sold us 100 jars of oil, and in exchange I gave him three yoke of oxen or something. The current writing system that you are using to take notes is extremely young. We can argue this with the English department here, but for all intents and purposes, it is less than 500 years old. Because quite frankly, if Shakespeare were in here and he were taking notes, probably we would not easily understand it. You would recognize it as like, oh yeah, that's something like English. But the fact of the matter is, the average person, whether they're American or New Zealand or South African, if they're a native speaker of English and they go in to listen to Shakespeare with no study, with no idea, they won't understand what's going on. So Shakespeare, believe it or not, is actually more popular in other languages. Shakespeare in Russian is amazing because it's translated into modern Russian. Anyone can go in and understand it perfectly. Shakespeare in most languages is easier to understand than it is for English speakers. Some of these ancient writing systems are used for thousands of years. Again, I'll say, English, as we understand it, is incredibly young, has not been around for that long. This is something we're going to talk about more, especially in the next class. Some writing systems survive better than others because different writing systems use different materials. 
How long will this paper survive, even if you wanted to preserve it perfectly? Sure, you could like, you know, dip it in some sort of clear resin and then it would be preserved, but that's because of the resin. The paper itself, I mean, we, we, we like it. It's a green material, it's biodegradable, it's sustainable. That also means it's not gonna last. Earlier writing systems use different materials. One of them we're going to talk about a lot, cuneiform, pressed pieces, usually reeds, into clay. There is no medium yet discovered that is longer lasting, which means that we have more handwriting that survives from 5,000 years ago than from the entire Roman Empire combined. And I mean the Roman Empire from, let's say, 100 BC to 1400. 1500 years of Roman history, the number of things that survived from that period, well, would fit in this room. It, would, it wouldn't even take up that much room in this room. Sumerian tablets written in cuneiform, there's millions. Most of them never translated because most people don't know or care about ancient Sumeria. But because they used clay, it survives. Okay, so proto-writing, some examples here. Proto-writing is not unique to any place or time. Proto-writing is being developed right now in various places around the planet. It does seem to be, let's call it, somewhat of a, a, a natural outgrowth. When you have a community of people that is more than 50, the moment you get a number of people who they want to have some sort of communication with people that they can't see right now. Once you have a communication system that requires talking to more people than you are related to, some sort of writing is useful. Proto-writing is not full functioning writing. Usually there are no verbs or adjectives. It is not something to communicate action. Again, it's very focused on math. There's money involved. Think of it that way. If there is money involved and you want to write down and remember who said what, there will be some sort of proto-writing. Most proto-writing dies. It isn't preserved. For the number one reason, there isn't enough there. Let me put it this way. Really no proto-writing system has ever successfully been translated by people outside of that system. There, just, there isn't enough there. Usually numbers can be understood. Okay, that's the sign for one. That's the sign for 10. And it's usually as simple as it has one line or one crosshatch or two or three. But once you get into, okay, what's this thing? Maybe that's a fire outside of a house. Uh, what's it look like? The other interesting thing about proto-writing, it is one for one substitution. You might not realize the significance of this. Every language, English is only one of them, every language has multiple meanings for most words. 
which means that the meaning of the word, I don't know, canon, there's a good example, canon, depends on the context in which it's found. Some words can be very specific, and you'll think there's only one way there can be, there's bicycle. It's so specific, it always means bicycle. Well, no, very quickly you can think about, wait a minute, what about the exercise we call bicycles? Now it becomes like anything that does the motion that you do on a bicycle. Very quickly, meanings add. That's how language grows and changes. The English language, I mean, that's what slang is, is coming up with new meanings for old words. Proto-writing doesn't have that. It's one for one. There is one sign, that sign means fire and only fire. So today we're going to talk about Utsi, Utsi the Iceman. He is this person who is alive right at the time when history is beginning. And specifically when he is alive is at that moment when proto-writing in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, is making that transition for the first time as far as we know in world history. I say as far as we know. We could find out tomorrow that it's not the oldest. but. For the last 100 years or so, this is what we have understood to be the oldest form of writing. Okay, so let me go even further back. In prehistory, before history, what I want you to understand is the human race, as we understand it, has been around a long time, a ridiculously long time in terms of things we know absolutely nothing about because it's before history, right? As wonderful as archaeology is, what archaeology can never tell you when they find this village that is 10,000 years old or 20,000 years old, they can't tell you what are the names of these people. What do they call themselves? Who is their king or their chief? Do they love each other? Who do they love? Who do they hate? Right? All of this really basic information in your own life is something that can only be recorded with writing. So, some people say genetically modern humans started a million years ago or 500,000 years ago. So, this number is not exact, right? CA, you're going to see this a lot. CA is short for circa, right? It means mas o menos, right? About. So, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later. It's our way of saying we don't know the exact number. So, here's the crazy thing. However early you think there were genetically modern humans, they were not acting like humans. So that anthropologists and archaeologists and paleobiologists, they differentiate between anatomically modern humans, which is to say if we put them in someone else's house and we raise them from babies, you will not be able to tell the difference. They look and act just like us as far as we can tell. But, before this year, call it 40,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago, they did not do the things that we recognize as being human, which is to say, they didn't care about dead people. There's no sign of burial. They didn't cook. They didn't tend to live in houses. They didn't use artwork. They didn't really use complicated tools. So for the majority of our time as an extent genetically modern species, 
we didn't really look that different from the animals. The main difference is genetically modern humans did have fire, but it is an open question as to what were they using it for? Because there isn't a whole lot of evidence of cooking. More likely they were using it to control the environment. Because you can burn things and change what grows. All of these things come late to be behaviorally modern. And I want to make it clear to you, history is no good at explaining what happened, but neither is any other field. This is probably the, the number one history to still be solved by archaeologists and anthropologists. What happened? There are many different theories. It's not like archaeologists don't care. They do care. Right? This is something that is being closely studied by many, many people. One of the theories I find most convincing is that what happened 40,000, 50,000 years ago was a physical change, but not the kind that is preserved in the fossil record. Something changed in the makeup of our brain. That's our, that's our guess. Because the size of our brain did not change. The size of our brain has been the same since 300,000 years ago. But perhaps 40,000 years ago, the part of our brain that controls language changed. This is a theory. That before 40,000, 50,000 years ago, people did not talk as we understand it. That's a theory. I'm not saying we know this, but they're trying to understand maybe all of the things we think about that separate us from the animals has to do with communication, has to do with language. And you might think, oh, but animals talk to each other, not like people do. At its simplest and most cynical, think of it in terms of a lie, right? The ability to tell somebody something that is untrue. It's kind of difficult to imagine any animal successfully lying to another of its species. And to be clear, like, Evolution would warrant that because lying is really good for your genetic code. You can get really good things if you get really good at lying. Some people have hypothesized that actually there are more psychopaths now than there's ever been because psychopaths kind of represent a evolutionary step in the right direction that they are supposedly without that conscience. They don't see a reason not to lie. It will help them get what they want. Okay, so this is a little bit confusing. What we have here are millions of years ago before the present. And this just gives you a sense of all of the different genetic understandings of ancient people. And people see this map and they say, okay, so up here is modern people, which is some mixture of Homo sapiens, Neanderthal, and so-called Denisovans. So all of us probably have some snippet of Neanderthal, some snippet of Denisovan, whatever this means. But none of those people had language probably until 50,000 years ago. Oh, sorry. So here you see the map of the, the typical understanding of the so-called out of Africa thesis. And what is interesting here is it seems that human beings left Africa twice 
first 300,000 years ago, anatomically modern humans left. I mean, they didn't all leave. People remained in Africa. The idea is it spread out from there. But also, behaviorally modern humans also seem to have begun in Africa. So in some ways, it makes sense to consider Africa as the cradle of humanity two times. Most recent common ancestor. I bring this up to give you an illustration of how genetically connected and how genetically similar modern human beings are to each other. Throughout this class, I will take as many opportunities as possible to challenge these ideas of, of group identities as being somehow blood or genetically based. When I say most re recent common ancestor, I don't mean the person who, who is the father or mother of all of us. This is not Adam and Eve. This is the person who, the most recent person who is every, in every single person's family tree. To be in your family tree means that they are somewhere up there. They are your great, 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 great grandfather or great, 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 great grandmother. But again, these, these increase in powers of two, right? So two parents, four grandparents, eight, 16, 32, 64. So being one person in your family tree doesn't have that much effect on you individually. As time has passed, the most recent common ancestor has moved up in time, which is to say, a thousand years ago, the most recent common ancestor was probably 30,000 years ago. Because a thousand years ago, people were much more isolated than they are now. Sure, we can talk about some sort of proto-globalization, but in general, people on their islands stayed on their islands. A hundred years ago, the most recent common ancestor was considered to be sometime between 100 and 150,000 years ago. Now it is considered to be around the year 300 BCE. Let me say that again. Right now, geneticists studying the code of people who live everywhere on the planet, even the most remote tribal peoples, you might imagine, like these people have never been anywhere. They are perfectly isolated. All of that, you need to understand, is kind of a myth. This idea that tribal peoples always stay in one place and have, that don't have a history of their own, like that, that is not true. People are not trees. We move. We don't have roots. We say family tree, and this idea that you have roots, that's a lovely image. It's also bonkers, because you don't stay in one place, and neither is anyone else in history. People will say, oh, well, my great-grandmother, she grew up in this village and lived there her entire life. That is much more rare than most people realize. Because your great-great-grandmother may have lived in that village her entire life. It's also just as likely that her husband came from another village. Maybe five villages over, maybe a country over. This idea of people marrying out of their kind, that is the story of human history. Unless you want to like bring back the days of, well, there were no days. There is no point in history where humans only procreated with their brothers and sisters. As mo the moment you move out to cousins, 
which is a thing, right? There are many cultures in the world that still believe that the best marriages happen between first cousins. Those first cousins don't necessarily live in the same town. They don't even necessarily live on the same continent. So what does this say about nationality? What does it say about race? Again, this most recent common ancestor, we don't know or care what language they spoke. They could have been in Papua New Guinea. They could have been in like, the desert south of Libya. The language they spoke, the color of their skin, none of this matters because quite frankly, the color of the skin of your family tree is not a constant. None of us stays the same color in that idea, that span of time. Sure, your parents probably look a lot like you. Maybe you look like a mixture of them. But again, the idea is once we go out to your great-grandparents, it is very likely we will find at least one of them who doesn't look that much like you at all. And that's only going back 60, maybe 80 years. Okay, so here is an example from my own family tree. I want to use this to illustrate a very important misunderstanding about genetics, okay? Genetics is super interesting and super important, but very easy to misunderstand. You are taught, very simply and truthfully, that you are roughly 50% of your mother and your father. Of course, if you're a guy, that means you know, there's the Y chromosome thrown in, but for now we'll ignore the Y chromosome. Because again, most of what makes you you is on your X. That's true, right? Half from mom, half from dad. But this chart is actually a lie. Because we are taught we are 50% of mom and dad. And so we then assume, well, I must be 25% of each of my grandparents. Right? Half again. I must be 12.5% of each of my great-grandparents. And you just half it out eternally. That is not true. Ask any geneticist and they will explain, well, no, of course not. You are this random mixture. If you were exactly half of all your grandparents, all of your cousins would look a lot more alike than they do. What is much more likely is a model like this. Now, I'll point this out to you. This is the most important number. Very quickly, whole branches of your family tree will disappear in you personally, you. You have cousins who preserve this person. You have second cousins who preserve this person. But you do not contain the genetic material of every person in your family tree. You can't. It's impossible. Let me make this even more clear. About one in four million people has zero percent of one of their grandparents. Now I have said what is more common. Most likely you have between 20 and 30 percent of each of your grandparents. But there's no way of knowing. You might have 40 percent of one grandparent and five percent of another. And one in four million has none. And again, this begins to make sense if you look at people with large families. Because it becomes very common for people to notice, gosh, I look so much more like my cousin than my brother or sister. Which is to say, yeah, that's totally possible. Yes, sir. 
is it possible Robert Emmanuel to come back for your kids or your kids' kids or is he just gone? Only through my cousin's kids. He's gone. Okay, well only once as long as percentage stays Exactly. These percentages only go down. If I put the next generation up, of course, all of that is going to be zero, but others of these may also reduce to zero. Your family tree is both much more interesting and much more complicated than you may have realized. Geneticists prefer to tell you that you have two, two family trees. Your first family tree, let's call it your historical family tree. These people had to live and have sex for you to be here. But your genetic family tree doesn't care about that. That's actually made up of who in this historical family tree is in your genetic code. And let me be more clear. This 15% of 100, maybe this is just like, you know, the size of my heart valves. They may not actually be visible in any way. Which goes a long way to explaining how racial characteristics can change in the space of a single generation. The color of our skin is not, it's not nearly as permanent as people who believe in like lifelong race wanted, wanted to believe. And again, it's always arbitrary which aspects of our physical makeup we, dis, we ascribe to race. Okay? Like, yes, the color of our skin is a very easy thing to see, unless it's dark or something. But it would, it's just as likely in the past that race was determined by the size and shape of your eyebrows, the number of freckles on your skin. But for some reason, we have really decided to focus on the pigment. And really, the pigment more than anything else, because people say, well, no, no, it's also the shape of your nose. It's also like, you know, the size of your ears. That's fine and well and good, but our census does not ask, what is the shape of your nose? It says, are you black, white, or something else? Whatever black and white is supposed to mean. Okay, Utsi. So, this is what Utsi looks like. And this is someone's fantastic idea of what they think he looked like when he was alive. Utsi. That's not his name. We don't know his name. He's prehistoric. Utsi is the, the mountain he was found on. The name of the mountain was Utsi, so we call him Utsi. If he had been found on Mount Everest, we'd call him Everest the Iceman. So he was found in the mountains north of Italy, right? The Alps, the Utsi Alps specifically. Far and away the most perfectly preserved prehistoric person we've ever found. When he was discovered, they called the cops because they thought he was a modern person who had been murdered and left to die up in the snow. So the cops show up, they bring the coroner, they ask coroner to determine the time of death, and the coroner says, you need to call an archeologist. This guy's been dead a long time. But he still has his hair. He still has his fingernails. He still has clothes because he's basically been kept in a freezer for something like five, six, seven thousand years. So since his discovery, an entire institute has been created in Italy that is entirely centered on him. This big building, all these rooms and laboratories, and he is in the center of it, kept on ice. Scientists go there to come up with some new experiment. What more can we learn about him? 
from all the radiocarbon tests, they're going to say he probably died and lived, let's call it a little more than 5,000 years ago. And again, to make it more clear to you, he is the most well-preserved ancient person. He is better preserved than any of the Egyptian mummies you might be thinking of, or any Peruvian mummy, mummy or any Uyghur mummy. All these various mummification procedures, well, they, they mostly preserve you by drying you out, usually by taking out your organs and making you basically into leather. That's not what happened to him. There's a lot of argument over how tall he was, because very likely the, you know, the preservation shrank him. So some people say he's five foot two inches because that's how tall his remains are. But other people suggest probably in life he was closer to five five or five six. From his bones, we can guess he was in the middle of his life, about 45 years old. Covered in tattoos, so when I say a few there, it's not a few. If you had this many tattoos, you would have spent a lot of money to get this many tattoos, I think. Let me say something else. You say, oh, he's 45 years old. Wow, he must have been ancient to those people because back in the day, people only lived to the age of 25. Let me, I'll say this again, but you need to understand life expectancy does not mean maximum life. Life expectancy is the average of all people who are born because most children have some difficulty surviving childhood before the you know modern medicine. If a, if a woman has eight children, hopefully at least two of them will survive to adulthood. Because of all those dead children, whether they're one years old or five months old or eight years old, the life expectancy goes down. But if you make it to the age of 20, you are very likely to live to 70 or 80 or 90 years old. If we look in the archeological record, there have always been people living into their 70s and 80s. What modern medicine has done more than anything else is allow people to live forever, as long as they're willing to not be alive. Which is to say, if you want a machine that's just gonna pump your blood and do your breathing for you and you don't care about thought process, well, yeah. We can keep you going. But this idea that all oh, modern medicine has allowed people to live into their 50s or their 70s, no, people have always lived that long if they survive childhood. Again, there is no history, right? The written language doesn't exist, so we do not know his name. We know nothing about him. We don't know his religion. We don't know, you know anything about his relationships. The only thing that survives is his body, his clothes, his tools. Thanks to the tests that have been done on him, finding various pieces of pollen or fur or lint all over his body, the scientists have guessed because on his person are the pollen of some plants that only grow in this area, they think. He came up here and for some reason went up there and died. He was murdered. Right? When the cops were called, it was because there's a very clear murder wound. Right? He, he, somebody axed him. That person is not preserved. Again, he's covered in these interesting tattoos. We have no idea what they mean. Again, there's no history. 
Some people believe these are things he made on himself, except others are in places where it would be kind of impossible to do it on yourself. Others suggest that these are medicinal, that this is being done to him to cure him of some disease. Again, not that it worked, but the idea is like it was maybe this was a practice. We've seen it in other cultures. People will get a tattoo for medicinal reasons, or maybe they're religious. But they are tattoos. This is not paint. Right? This is, these are as just like modern tattoos. Pigment has been put underneath the skin. It is permanent. You probably heard some things there that made you go, huh? When they said uh, they, weren't, they couldn't find his stomach. You're probably thinking, well, what are they, a bunch of morons or something? Well, they're going to find the stomach the moment they cut him open. Okay. Do you think they ever cut this guy open? Right, because an autopsy is destructive. It is always destructive. Certain things are going to come out and be destroyed. They're trying to come up with the most ingenious ways to study this thing so that they can preserve it for future scientists. Why preserve it for future scientists? Because if you're a good scientist, you know in 100 years from now, the future scientists are going to look back at you like you're a moron. So one of the most amazing things about this is this stomach study they did, it destroyed the stomach. Well, of course it did, right? Because if you're going to tell me you're going to take an account of every molecule in the stomach, I don't think the stomach's going to come back from that. Much testing is destructive. This is one of the ways in which history is a fairly sustainable and friendly study, that when I read a book, I don't read it and then eat it. This is one of the problems with science, is that to find out many of the things, you have to destroy the sample. So every time you see someone saying, oh, well, this is ancient biblical text, why don't they radiocarbon date it? Because they don't want to destroy it. You cannot radiocarbon date anything without destroying it in the process. Now, what has improved is the amount of material you need to destroy. In the early days of radiocarbon dating, you would destroy most of a book to find out how old it was before you destroyed it. Now, maybe just part of a page. But then the question is, well, which part of the page? Isn't the whole thing important? All right. So, Utzi lived and died in the era of proto-writing. He is, in, think of it this way, the youngest prehistoric person that we know about. He is 500 years older than Stonehenge by our best reckoning. He's about a thousand years older than the pyramids. But when he is alive, there are people in Iraq who are writing in proto-Sumerian. He's about as old as the oldest Egyptian mummies. And he is better preserved than any of those things. Utsi is in astoundingly good shape, which is part of the reason he's being so carefully guarded. How stupid would we look if this person survived 5,000 years, was discovered in the 1990s, and then we, we screw it up? You know, you unplug the freezer and he rots. This is the number one fear at this institute in Italy. They have multiple generators. Because you never know that that once in a thousand years occurrence, there's a tornado, there's an earthquake, 
The museum's in trouble. Somebody trips over the cord, unplugs the freezer. Well, sorry, that's it. That's the end of Utsi. Because the moment he is brought up to room temperature, that's it. That's the end. 